Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Over 250,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 28th episode, our guest is John Seabrook. But before we get to that, I need to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor. For you, the listeners of the Rob Burgess Show podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. A book which pertains to this episode is The Song Machine by today's guest, John Seabrook. Whatever book you pick, you can exchange it at any time, you can cancel at any time, and the books are yours to keep. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show for your free audiobook. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available. Whether it's iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, or RSS, you can find links to everything on the official website, www.therobburgessshow.com. You can also find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Back to today's show. John Seabrook is the author of The Song Machine, Inside the Hit Factory, published in hardback by Norton in October 2015. The paperback edition comes out October 18th. He is also the author of No Brow, The Culture of Marketing, The Marketing of Culture, which was published in 2000, and Deeper, My Two-Year Odyssey in Cyberspace, which was published in 1997, and Flash of Genius and Other True Stories of Invention, published in 2008. He has been a contributor to The New Yorker since 1989 and became a staff writer in 1993. He explores the intersection between creativity and commerce in the fields of technology, design, and music. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife and two children and a dog and a cat. And now on to the show. Hey, Rob. Sorry. Oh, hey. How's it going? Good. Good. I didn't catch you at a bad time, did I? No, no. This is good. I was just cleaning up a little bit. Oh, okay. This is perfect. Okay, cool. All right, well, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, so uh, you might want to just start out by telling us about your, your musical background kind of before you you delved into the uh, the realms of, of pop music. What, what were you listening to and what, what kind of music do you find yourself listening to for pleasure just before you all, for all this here? Well, there's kind of two different components, I guess. I mean, I grew up with the music of the '70s, so which was a which was sort of you know the great rock and roll of the early period with the Stones, and you know well, you know there's just the Led Zeppelin, you know sort of a tail end of Led Zeppelin, but 
anyway, there was a lot of fantastic rock and roll in the 70s. There was also, you know, Neil Young and stuff like that. Um, and and so, you know, you kind of form your musical tastes uh, in that era when you're a teenager. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think you ever really changed. So in terms of my music, I would say that's probably my music. And now I kind of play covers of those songs in a band. Uh, it's a sort of another way of maybe sort of uh, enjoying those songs. Mm. Uh, so I kind of started out listening to them, and then I ended up kind of like playing them as a, you know, sort of middle-aged person. And But in terms of uh, new music, I say I listen to hip-hop mainly uh, for new music, uh, just because I just find it the most exciting um, genre. Uh, it's always kind of morphing. There's good periods and not such great periods, but now it's, I think it's kind of an interesting good period. It's kind of combining with EDM in an interesting way. Uh, so that's kind of what I listen to. And pop is not something that uh, I would probably ever really like sit down uh, and listen to. Uh, obviously, you can, one of the themes of my book is you can't really avoid it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're in the car at all, you're going to hear it. And if you're at a mall or a stadium or basically anywhere in urban life, you're going to hear it. Uh, and it's not like I have like a I never. It's not like I hated it or hate it or you know, uh, but I guess my tastes are a little bit more, um, uh, le- a little less mainstream mm-hmm. than that maybe. Uh, so I kind of interest. I listen to it now because I'm interested in the scene and, and who's coming on and who the songwriters are and and of course my son is still listening to a lot of it. But it's not something that I kind of like really sit down and listen to for fun. I see. But so listening, I'm su- I'm assuming you had to listen to a lot of a lot of this uh, during the writing of the book. Right. Did, it, did it change your uh, perception of of the music at all? Like, did you start to appreciate things you hadn't appreciated before uh, about the music? Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, a fair a statement. I did come to appreciate. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I've always appreciated the the sort of magic that goes into uh, making a song that just stands out and is a hit, you know, and that everybody listens to. You know, I mean, even if I'm not, you know, the person that that song is made for, I have an interest in trying to figure out what that thing is, uh, and you can never really say exactly. Because uh, it's always got to be a little bit new, I think. But uh, uh, I listen to pop music uh, now, uh, kind of a little bit more aware uh, of of that, trying to figure out that thing. And of course, I'm also now much more aware of who wrote the songs. Uh, like I like to figure out, you know, where, particularly of the people in my book, uh, you know, because it's basically been uh, in, in in pop. You know, in pop history, careers don't last that long, mm-hmm. um, unlike uh, other sort of forms of uh, human endeavor. So writing a book about, you know, um, people who are sort of of the moment in, in the pop world has this kind of built-in uh, liability to it is that, you know, it might not last uh, very long. Like, they may not last very long. So, so now I'm just kind of interested in, like, are these people actually going to stick around? And um, and so far, um, I mean, one of the most amazing things, really, is sort of post pub, or at least post writing of the book, is how Max Martin, who was already basically, 
at the top of the game has even gone to a higher level, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with Taylor Swift and uh, The Weeknd and uh, Ariana Grande than he was, you know, post Katy Perry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's been something I've, I've watched with interest. I, I did a afterward for the paperbacks where I kind of tried to bring this stuff uh, mm-hmm. up to date. And right. of course, the Dr. Luke thing uh, uh, developed uh, quite a bit afterwards mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so that was something that that was a different. That was a little bit like the characters in your book kind of come to life and, <laughs> and sue each other. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that was pretty interesting. Yeah, continuingly, continu- <laughs> you know. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, uh, speaking of Max Martin, I mean, one of the things I, I mentioned in the column I wrote that uh, that I did while I was reading the book as I went and I just looked up Max Martin because I, of course, started to hear about it reading in your book, and I was like, is this person really? And I, you know, I, like you said about things when you were 12 or whatever, when you are coming up as a kid, those will always kind of make an imprint. Uh, man, I was 12 and 95, and you want to talk about, like, Max Martin ruling the airwaves, basically right. writing, like, 40% of all the music from my youth, and it's just, like, hit after hit, and it's just like, oh my gosh, this was one person doing all this. Uh, so, right. And that was just his first iteration and then he had yeah. like another one and and then another one yeah now he's, so now he's on his third oh yeah exactly it's crazy and one thing i thought was interesting about when you talk about him and, and also dennis pop and, and some of these other uh scandinavian uh you know songwriters is that you know maybe having a english as a second language perspective actually helped them as opposed to what you're ta- you kind of talked about how in the past you know if you want to take a back to like Irving Berlin and all these classic standards writers of American pop music uh, back through the ages. It's all about, you know, wordplay and, you know, there's a lot of uh, innuendo and, 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 you know, these and these people can barely speak English that so they're writing these, uh, you know, from, from Sweden and Norway and that, but it actually helps them because they can just kind of, whatever sounds good, you know what I mean? So... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think partly, like, Irving Berlin probably wasn't writing with the idea that he's going to be, like, a global hit, probably. Mm-hmm. One thing is, like, they were thinking that their audience was all English speakers and, uh, you know, that they were all probably pretty educated and would get the references. Uh, I think if Irving Berlin was writing today, you would find that most people just wouldn't get it, you know? <laughs> uh, because, I don't know if that means the audience is dumber, but and I think the audience is definitely a lot bigger in terms of non-English speakers. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I also think that... Uh, Songwriting has, I think, evolved away from more of a literary practice where, you know, literary devices like double entendre and metaphor were used freely, uh, just the way they would be used in in poetry, uh, to uh, kind of more of a sonic composition. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is greatly aided by technology uh, in which, you know, the, the power of the tools of uh, music software uh, really kind of come first, I think, in most composers' 
you know, experience and minds, and, and just in terms of, like, you know, what's exciting and, and kind of what you can learn, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a kid can learn, you know, music software and and relatively quickly make, you know, a pretty professional sounding track, but to learn language and poetry, you know, and, mm-hmm. and get good at words, that takes a lot more time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just sort of feel like, it's it's partly driven by technology and 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 maybe it's just you know inevitable given the nature of songs which are you know they do have a very strong obviously musical component they're not just words and uh i feel like they i mean if you you could probably make an argument that they sort of emerge you know that that the greek bards were sort of you know singing stories like the iliad and and that that they kind of emerge from the literary tradition, but but now I think, and particularly in the last you know twenty thirty years, and kind of what I'm writing about in the book, they've really crossed over into a very sort of sonic thing. And I think the other thing uh, there is that the number of authors involved oh, yeah. in, in uh, creating a song uh, traditionally was one or two. You know, there was always sort of two usually, uh, and up until you know. Jagger and Richards and Lennon McCarthy and what are all the musicals you you, th- you can think of with Rodgers and Hammerstein and stuff, but but now there's way more than two uh, uh, authors usually involved in a song. Again, because technology allows you to collaborate with anyone, you know, anywhere across the internet, uh, and and so I think songs are kind of becoming more like these kind of group products uh, than and sort of individual works of authorship, and I also I, so I think that also kind of moves them away from uh, sort of a literary tradition, you know, mm-hmm. and into more of something maybe more like television or, or something where it's kind of written by groups. Right. Well, and you kind of talk about this in the book a lot because you, you have people that do the the top line uh, right. that you know kind of do that part of it, and then that's separate from the person that does the uh, the the beat, and then there's a person that does the melody. So it's almost kind of like the Henry Ford, you know, right. modular, you know, you do this, you do this, it's kind of specialization in one area as opposed exactly. to, yeah, so it is kind of almost uh, like, it is a, you know, the word factory is very apt, you know what I mean, to describe all this, so, um, that's, that's, it is, and yeah. it is with one qualification, What's that? one qualification, and that's that there's also kind of like an information processing component to it, like a factory is sort of a metaphor that sort of precedes the information age, uh-huh. uh, and kind of one of the things that's enabling uh, a lot of this stuff to happen is that it's kind of moved away, like the production of songs is very much part of the information age now, and uh, so like the metaphor of like a, a giant computer or, 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 you know, a processor is as probably as apt in mm-hmm. some ways as a factory, but right. certainly in terms of the... <coughs> Sorry, specialization and um, the emphasis on like output and product, mm-hmm. um, you know, and 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 attend, tending toward uniformity, uh, all of that is very sort of factory-like. Yeah, yeah, sure. absolutely. Um, now, I don't know if you've—I uh, don't think you discussed this in the book, but uh, you, you may—you probably have heard about this. Have you heard about the millennial whoop? 
No. Okay. Uh, it's this concept, and it's not a new concept, but people have been saying it about music of the last few years. It's a familiar snippet of it's. It's a modulation between the third and fifth notes of the scale of the song, and it's something that is supposed to give you a familiarity with the song, even if you've never heard it before. Um, oh. It's apparently very common, and I and I once I heard this compilation uh, in this video I saw, it became very obvious what it was. It's the oh, oh, oh like it's kind of that thing, and it and it, it people oh. use it over and over again. But oh, then somebody pointed it. out that you know this you want to take it back to classical music. It's even you know and do 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 you know it's it's not a new you know <laughs> concept, That's but a great one. yeah, I thought that was an interesting thing. Millennial lo- ho- hoop, uh, whoop, the millennial whoop. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you the link to the video. It's pretty it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of like yes, this is new, but in some ways it's not. Um, one thing I thought that was interesting in the in the beginning of the book, you kind of talk about listening to these in the car with your son, and you talk about how the song has many hooks throughout the song. It's just not it's not just the one big hook at the, at right. the chorus. You know, it's just little many hooks throughout the song. Um, and do you, do you see that as kind of a newer concept in music? Because I feel like maybe that was kind of somewhat always there in, in popular music. Maybe not yeah. to the degree it is now, but there's an argument that you know the Beatles had a lot of hooks, and the Ramones tried to kind of get back to a lot of hooks, and certainly there was. You know, there's sort of a, an emphasis on on hooky sort of th- parts of those songs, but I think uh, you make a comparison to um, the way if you watch a film, even from the '80s, you feel like the pacing is pretty slow. That, like, you know, compared to a film of today, there are a lot fewer cuts and and scenes tend to last longer, and you know, it seems to kind of drag uh, when you look at it from modernized even if you really liked it in, back in the 80s, I sort of feel like something similar has kind of happened in popular song that, that people used to give melody more time to, to develop. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you listen to, like, a Burt Batgrack melody or even a Paul McCartney melody, they flow, and, yeah, there are hooks, but there are definite sort of parts, and, you know, you have to kind of wait for it often a little longer. Uh, and uh, it's just... I, I feel like it's structured differently um, and that today's songs are sort of supercharged with hooks uh, to grab you as soon as possible and then really keep you uh, from from changing the channel or, or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that is driven by, I think, you know, the, the exigencies of, of CHR, Contemporary Hits Radio, mainly, uh, and also that, you know, these songs are demanding attention in crowded, loud places where they're competing with a lot of other distractions uh, and, you know, have to make themselves heard. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's what they do. Uh, uh, So, yeah, I I, I think you're right that there there was, you could probably say that um, pop music sort of forgot about the importance of the hook and that that the Swedes came along to kind of remind us of that. Right. Uh, but I also think they pushed pretty far beyond uh, and really kind of working uh, the, the whole track and hook method really, I think, um, 
just kind of favors, uh, you know, more of a hook. And a hook isn't really a melody. I mean, it's it's a it's like a condensed melody. It's like, it's like, well, it's a, like a, a repeated phrase, I guess. Yeah, you'd say. it's yeah. not a riff either, though. You know, right, I mean, right. it's, mm-hmm. it's melodic. It's more melodic than a riff, mm-hmm. uh, but it's less melodic than a melody than like a whole melody. Yeah. you wouldn't call a hook a melody, right? Right. You know, it's a it's a it's like a condensed melody or a it's the way the melody is structured so that it has those things. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Different, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, to kind of go back to the wordplay and stuff, uh, you, you didn't really talk about this too much in the books. I know this is more focused on pop music, but it's kind of been interesting what's happened to country music or whatever passes for country music these days. Um, it seems like that may be the last bastion of kind of uh, wordplay, uh, you know, <laughs> as far as, yeah. uh, you know, uh, using, uh, you know, you look like I need a drink, uh, things like, you know, yeah. these kind of turns of garden path sentences and things like that, so. Um, in English, they really play on, like, puns and, like, wordplay. There's yeah. a lot of wordplay in country music. Unfortunately, so much of it is is constrained within these conventions of, you know, be in the truck or having to be in the bar, uh, you know, and and the and and or on the female side, like scratching your keys on the side of the guy's pickup truck because he cheated on you. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, it would be great, and, and you know, I think uh, songwriters like Jason Isbell or Chris Stapleton, they they can do that mm-hmm. uh, and break out of the country mold. Uh, and there, there's a lot of potential there because the bro country thing is really just. I don't know. It doesn't do it for me. I'm not, I'm not one of those bros. Right. Know. Well, I mean, I, I like the the actual classic country. I mean, my son's middle name is is Cash, so you can kind of guess yeah. where that comes from. So. Yeah, totally. I love Johnny Cash. I mean, everyone loves Johnny Cash. Sure. Absolutely. Um, now, it's interesting too with the with the Swedes and the kind of Scandinavians because you you talk about this in the book, but it's uh, it's basically they're reflecting our own culture back at us, but by a delay of a couple of years. So. When the Backstreet Boys come out, uh, you, you kind of talk about this, how it's like, it's this amalgamation of, of different things that are not really in fashion, and, and it's like, was anyone screaming for a, a Euro pop, you know, thing in, in 95 or whatever? Right. Not really, but apparently, yeah. you know, we were ready, enough time had passed since the initial wave that we were right. ready to reabsorb that, so it's almost like a mirror reflected back onto American culture of its own, you know, <laughs> whatever's left over from the previous waves or whatever, so... It's kind of like, yeah, it's like you take it uh, apart, you put it back together, it's a little bit, it's like 10 degrees off center or something. It's not exactly the way it would have been if it were made by an American. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it it, it kind of works. Um, um, uh, It makes it strange enough and different enough that it sounds kind of new or something, even Mm -hmm. if you... You don't know um, uh, what it, you know, what it is. I don't know. It's just, and 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 though maybe it's not new anymore. I think it was certainly new. Like, uh, "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time" still sounds kind of new, mm-hmm. even though it's old. It 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 kind of brought something together about. Um, 
maybe it was it had, the rock elements were in there. It was all those, the, you know, there was sort of an R&B element. There was a rock element. There were all these kind of like um, flavors of songs that, again, I think if you were an American, and, and I talk a lot in the book about the whole racial component of this, too, that, you know, like mm-hmm. if you're an American songwriter and you're white, you really don't think, oh, I'm going to sit down and write an R&B song now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not like something you are in any way like, you know, bred or, or prepared culturally to do. Uh, but in Sweden, you do. You say, and that's exactly what these guys did. They just said, hey, let's write, let's write an R&B song for TLC. And, uh, you know, we'll call it Hit Me Baby one more time. And, and that's what they did. And then TLC said, we're not going to sing that song. Uh, you know, and then they gave it to Britney Spears. And, and they, I think they kind of did that again and again. They sort of kept trying to write songs for black people and because it was cool uh, like everybody uh, tries uh, but you know they kept coming out as like you know kind of R&B sounding songs for white people until finally with The weekend, Uh Max actually did write a song for a black guy right finally cracked it yeah Um, but yeah that's that's interesting and you also talk a lot about this especially when you talk about Ace of Bass you know you kind of break down the lyrics of some of their songs and it's like these you know no native English speaker would have come up with this you know string of words right here and if you want to go with Britney Spears uh, you know that song and I guess TLC there's there's an interesting alternate history to think about if they had actually recorded that song but um, but the hit me baby I remember when that came out that was like oh is, is this domestic violence are we talking about this right now <laughs> like, it's kind of it's such an awkward thing to like wedge into like a, a you know an otherwise kind of you know pop song you know what I mean so. I know it was totally Swedish it would never have happened if yeah. it wasn't a Swede yeah exactly um, so and then uh, kind of off the backs of Backstreet Boys you kind of have the the rise of uh, NSYNC and kind of the Mickey Mouse Club generation uh, with with uh, course Britney and, and Christina and, and all that um, you kind of mentioned this too you talk about how when Lou Pearlman who of course recently died mm-hmm. uh, was putting together in uh, sync he, he was basically trying to find people that could actually sing because it wasn't the always the knock on the backstreet boys is because they couldn't really no. couldn't really sing. <laughs> you've got that quite you got that slightly wrong it was Lou was uh, copying um, new kids on the block oh, okay got it new kids okay. on the block was the first of the kind of white modern boy bands right that did sort of but they but there was a whole uh, thing about how they couldn't sing and a big mm. and you know before your time a little bit there was actually an even bigger scandal uh, right around that same time with Millie Vanilli okay. uh, yep. they won a Grammy as the best new artist and then it turned out they hadn't actually sung on their track and they had to take the Grammy away so there was this and this, this was like a much bigger deal than you would think it would be everyone was like shocked yeah. that you know singers weren't <laughs> actually singing their songs yeah. and and so so that so Lou's thing with the Backstreet Boys was to prove that you know they really could sing and and they really could sing uh-huh. uh, that he would have them sing a cappella at all of their shows at least you know one song 
to prove that they could sing. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, now, you kind of talked a little bit about this uh, in the beginning here, but uh, the Kesha Dr. Luke thing has been has been very interesting to watch, um, you know, with uh, the artist kind of rebelling against the producer. Um, I, I guess it would be good to kind of give an overview of, you kind of talk about this too in the book, how, you know, the rise of the producer as the role of kind of string puller, it, it wasn't always like that, right? I mean, the producer was not always the, the mastermind, right? This is kind of a newer development? It's, it's, it is a newer development to the extent that the producers are now, <laughs> you know, uh, technically capable of so much <clears throat> in the studio. But, you know, uh, of course, uh, Phil Spector was really the first uh, mm-hmm. of, the, of the sort of model of the super producers that really uh, were more important than the artists, saw themselves as more important than the artists uh, in, in creating the songs. And, um, you know, uh, that's a tradition that then you could say Brian Wilson was inspired by Phil Spector. And, of course, he was also uh, a great songwriter. But, uh, you know, a lot of those Beach Boys songs were very studio-made songs as well. But then certainly in the singer-songwriter era, you know, the sort of 60s, 70s, later 60s and 70s, into the mid-80s, I would say, the producers were, you know, basically hired hands to the artists, you know, like mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin or The Who. I mean, they, they tended to, you know, David Bowie worked with uh, Tony Visconti. I mean, they, te- they tended to, work, there, was a, there, was, there was definitely like a small group of, you know, it was Glenn Johns. There, there, there was mm-hmm. sort of a small group of guys that, that those bands would work with, but they, they were essentially, you know, recording the band's live sound, you know, to one extent or another. Uh, and it wasn't really, I think, until, you know, a lot of it came from hip-hop uh, originally. Uh, the tradition of the producer as the kind of mastermind, I think, owes as much to, uh, you know, the roots of hip-hop and, and the role that the the producer plays, you know, in hip hop uh, is is a very important influence on today's pop uh, production. That's one of the kind of things that uh, I think is little understood about today's pop production is that it really doesn't derive as much from the the, the way standards were created with you know sort of a melody writer and a lyric writer, but it really uh, derives more from the way like reggae and and early hip hop was created where you had a guy who was making like rhythm tracks and then mm-hmm. you had a rapper coming in and and rapping over them that which is now like what the hook writer mm-hmm. does in in that situation but um so so yeah I can't remember how we started that but, um, <laughs> Well, uh, you actually have a pretty interesting section about one uh, person that does the the, the hooks. Is Esther Dean? Is that is that her yeah. name? Yeah. She now she does the the hooks. Right. She kind of sings like kind of nonsense words over the over the beat, yeah. and then kind of constructs it uh, that way. And she was trying to become a, an artist in her own right, uh, at least yeah. as I remember in the book. Uh, yeah. did, had she made any progress? I forget. Uh, she is still working on you know becoming like a name artist. Uh, I'm not sure where that stands, but um, she is. She is. Uh, she has uh, kind of a whole second career as uh, a voice 
actor in animated films and also in the two pitch perfect movies hmm. she played uh you know the black lesbian among oh. the bellas okay. uh, huh. and has got quite a following uh through that interesting uh, so she's kind of just an outsized personality and she continues to write hooks uh, she's had a couple recently um you know i mean she's definitely mm-hmm. still at the top top you know two or three Right. Book writers that you get in at mm-hmm. probably considerable expense to to work on an album. Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary Twenty Feet from Stardom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's and they have that little uh, montage in that of all the all the backup singers, uh, yeah. you know, with the, who didn't who didn't quite quite make it or whatever. Right. So I can I can understand the pull of wanting to be that person or whatever, especially if you're you know that close to it for so long. So yeah, um, for sure, it's yeah. hard to. Uh, I mean, of course, that's what you want. Sure. I mean, that's another thing about Max Martin that I think makes him, uh, uh, well, at least has allowed him to last for as long as he's lasted, is that he doesn't, he really doesn't want to be an artist. He he tried it at the beginning of his career. Uh, I guess he didn't like it. uh, And uh, he's perfectly happy to uh, be behind the scenes. And that's pretty rare uh, in this world. Mm -hmm. Most people uh, are not that happy to be behind the scenes. Uh, you know, they want to be in front of the scene. Sure, absolutely. And what he he wasn't even involved in in pop music at the beginning of his career, right? His first iteration was it was like a black metal band or something, right? It was like wasn't a glam metal band, glam metal, but uh, yeah. glam metal. Um, you know, it had there's something about glam metal and pop. Uh, the the guy who writes, Justin Trainer, who wrote. Um, uh, sorry for Justin Bieber, and uh, he's written a couple of other big kind of pop hits recently. Before that was the lead singer of this glam metal band called Semi Precious Weapons, who were really pretty far. I actually saw them because they opened for Lady Gaga at Radio City Music Hall, and they were out there. You know, they were they were not mainstream. They were offensive and uh, aggressively gay and uh, <laughs> and aggressively loud and metally and right. uh, all the like little girls who come to see Lady Gaga were their parents were completely freaking out <laughs> in the audience and that guy is now like you know like one of the top top pop writers in the game so I don't know I think I think I think part of it is glam metal is a lot it's very dramatic uh, the there's you know the vocal Vocal, even though it's often sort of hard to take, is a very significant part of the song. Uh, it's very, it's just, it's theatrical, and I think pop benefits you know, mm-hmm. from being theatrical like that. Yeah, I wouldn't have made that connection, but I think I think that's probably a pretty good uh, comparison there. Uh, now, one thing I, I've been dying to talk to you about because my uh, one of my best friends lives in South Korea and uh, he teaches English there, so uh, okay. we've been on the podcast before talking about this. But he always tells me about the K-pop happening over there, and, and this yeah. figures in pretty heavily into your book, 
for good reason because it is one of the most emerging uh, markets for pop music in the world, and it's it's you want to talk about a factory system. I mean, right. these people live in like dormitories and they're recru- right. recruited and eighteen hours a day, and so uh, it's just it's I don't, I don't know. It's almost a hyper version of of our system, even more so than than we do. And uh, what do you, what do you think the um, you know it's, it's interesting then seeing the only person breaking through really is the Gangnam Style, and right. he's like he's like this kind of schlubby forty year old guy in all these. That's right, the whole system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's fascinating. Uh, you're right. It is like the most extreme version of a factory system that was sort of started here by Lou, but but before that by Barry Gordy, <coughs> Motown, and some other places as well. And um, they just took it kind of uh, farther uh, than we would probably ever take it. It's a little bit you could you could sort of think of it as sort of like Samsung versus Apple, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you know, it's sort of like the uh, the people that innovate, and of course, this, you know, Apple also took ideas from other people. But if you looked at Apple as the one that sort of you know broke through with the iPhone, and then uh, you know, which was maybe like rock and roll or something, and then Samsung came along and kind of copied it, but but you know, added to it and improved it and changed it a little bit, and that's kind of like what sort of like K-pop, uh, or we could say from from boy bands like Backstreet Boys was like the the iPhone, and then like uh, you know uh, G Dragon is like Samsung or something. But so I, so you know they they I think they definitely like took the idea from from you know Backstreet Boys mm-hmm. and then and NSYNC, and then uh, they added you know Korean elements. But interestingly, um, it doesn't seem to really <coughs> work when it comes back. Here, you know, like mm-hmm. like the Swede thing, the Swedish thing works great, and uh, it's it's very much sort of intended for this market. Uh, mm-hmm. But the 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 K-pop thing, it seems too you know too artificial. I think for Americans, you right? Know, we demand uh, whether it's you know. Uh, right or hypocritical or, or just deluded this notion of authenticity, but you know, <laughs> we demand a certain level of authenticity from our performers, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the notion that they're completely created by a factory system um, in the way they are in K-pop is, is one or two notches beyond what we're willing to tolerate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, um, and and that's why Psy did break through because no, there's no no one's gonna like design you know a, little pu- a pudgy guy's horseback riding dance as a thing that's gonna break right. you know uh, and so that's just an element that, that is, a, is a difference in our cultures I guess mm-hmm. uh, but I think as long as 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 you know K-pop has that. You know, highly artificial quality. Uh, it does seem to be influential. Uh, I think more on the hip hop side probably than the pop side. But you know, the production is extremely um, over the top synth driven, and 
and that sort of more consistent with you know the hip hop side of EDM side of things, and and then also I think you know the the clothes uh, and the styles of the video videos are are sort of more consistent with kind of hip hop style than than K-pop. So I see that as being an area of influence, uh, and probably will grow. Uh, and maybe there'll be like one unique star. You thought it was just going to be this guy G Dragon, and maybe it could still could, could be. Mm-hmm. But maybe there'll be one unique star that that crosses over. But I don't think the groups, you know, like the seven or eight nine girl groups, yeah. are really going to make it big in the states. There's just too many. Of them. Exactly. Like like some of these groups. I, there was one. I, I can't remember what the name was. Maybe it was Twenty One. I don't remember. But they have like like a, one, yeah. d- a dozen members. It's like how am I supposed to keep track of all these people? Yeah. But um, yeah, it's interesting. I was listening to a uh, Radio Lab episode uh, the other day from a couple months ago about K-pop, and I, uh, I thought it was interesting that a big scandal in the K-pop world was that these two members of two different groups were dating because you're not even supposed to like date because you're you belong to the fans or whatever. So maybe that goes along with what you're saying about unreality or whatever. It's like we we, we don't expect that level of you know, commitment from our pop right. stars. You that know, they can date weird. somebody. You know what I mean? So I mean, it's true that our pop stars live in this bizarre sort of fake world where Justin Bieber does date Selena Gomez and, mm-hmm. and they break up, or Britney Spears dates, you know, Justin Timberlake, and then you know, things do kind of happen in this in this sort of weirdly sort of by design Disney way. But I guess that's just you know, that's it's not it's not really being designed by any one person. It's just the way the system kind of works out. I guess. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, you have a, sections about uh, Rihanna and, and Katy Perry and some of the newer versions of, of this of this pop star uh, iteration. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see any difference in how their careers are going as opposed to, you know, the kind of previous generation of the Britney Spears and Christina's and all that? Well, they're lasting a pretty long time. Um uh, I mean, I think you know Rihanna's uh, lasted longer now than Britney on before having a breakdown, uh, you know, in her first go around. And uh, Christina Aguilera actually uh, really wasn't a big presence for for too long either. I mean, not I mean, we have like a Beyonce, Rihanna, to a certain extent, Katy Perry. Uh, those those are careers that are now, you know, in in pop terms, uh, getting pretty long uh, and don't really show any signs of, uh, of flagging anytime soon. And I think maybe the, the difference is, and this is just sort of a general difference in culture, but uh, it's more and more, uh, I think, popular to think of artists in terms of brands as, as being kind of these giant brands that are, you know, created like brands are and nurtured and invested in. And then when they get valuable, you know, it's uh, you protect the brand at all costs and try to, you know, extend the brand. And there, I think there's a, a mindset among young managers and and you know label uh, executives uh, that you know that's how you go about uh, uh, developing a, a major star and keeping them around and and you know also I think uh, having social media at their disposal so they don't really have to interact with the press uh, and don't really have to answer you know any questions they don't really want to answer also uh, makes it I think possible to last longer, you know, you sort of 
destroyed scandals and uh, mm. images, uh, unflattering images that you know you are forced to uh, to traffic in before social media because you needed the press to give you exposure. And of course, the press didn't always do what you wanted them to do. But uh, with social media, you can project exactly you know more usually the image you want to project. And I think that also helps people last longer. Um, and uh, and finally, I guess uh, you know the pop period, the sort of pure pop phase, uh, has lasted a very long time uh, now. I, I sort of charted from you know since you've been gone, 2004. Uh, you know, uh, 12 years is almost unheard of in terms. You know, if you believe in the cycles that I wrote about in the book, that guys Napoleon came up with, where you had like kind of a pure pop center, but uh, that inevitably got kind of boring and led to what he called the doldrums, and then uh, the doldrums were, of course, were boring, and, <laughs> and then the younger crowd would sort of move away to the extremes, and then music, you would get, you know, grunge or, you know, uh, punk, uh, or to a certain extent, uh, the, you know, sort of hip-hop in the early 2000s. You know, with Eminem and and Fifty Cent and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and then it would kind of swing back to the middle and and start again. But that hasn't really happened since two thousand. Well, since the early two thousands, I think uh, since mm-hmm. Eminem, it's pretty pretty much smooth sailing. And uh, so I think that's a, that's also a reason why you know people have lasted longer now. Yeah, you're right because there was always kind of that pendulum swing from the the, the quote unquote fake to the quote unquote real, you know, you right. had, uh, you know, hair metal to Nirvana, and then, you know, Britney Spears back to the White Stripes, but yeah, it seems like it's kind of just, you know, it, it most mostly pop going forward, it doesn't seem to be swinging back. Do you think that's because we live in more of a monoculture at this point, as opposed to a varied culture, or what, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, there's definitely uh, a monoculture, I, well, I... I in another book, I kind of had this, in my book, No Brow, I had this image of, like, um, there's sort of, like, two grids. There's, like, a big grid and a small grid. And, like, the big grid is, like, kind of this monoculture that everybody is more and more connected to and, you know, through Twitter or, or whatever, just kind of knows if, you know, anything happens. Uh, and then there's this small grid, which is your own sort of, like, little subculture of of, you know, vegan, whatever, uh, interests, and, um, you know, that's only a few people you share with, and that as the bigger one gets bigger, the smaller one gets smaller. So, yeah, I'm going to stay with that and say that I was right, <laughs> and, and that that's kind of what you've, you've seen happen more, uh-huh. uh, and um, yeah, I think that's one of the roles that these songs play on that sort of big grid, is that they provide um, you know, something to share with people who you don't know otherwise, you know, except through social media. You know, you can comment on a video by Drake, whether you like his dance or do you not like his dance or, you know, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that, that people kind of form, if not friendships, then relationships around. And um, and so, you know, I think that's where, that's where the people who were talking about the small grit, I mean, not the small grit, the, the long tail uh, back in the uh, 10 years 
years ago, this idea that the internet would um, would uh, end the reliance on hits as much, at least, because uh, you know there was infinite shelf space on the internet as opposed to a limited number of shelf space in a record store, and so you didn't just have to stock the big sellers; you could stock everything, and then you know taste could do what it wanted to do, and it wouldn't be manipulated by these commercial interests, and you know the middle class artists would thrive. Mm-hmm. Of course, none of that so far has happened, um, and partly it's because of you know the way artists are getting paid, but it's also partly because uh, it turns out that even if you give people infinite shelf space, uh, and maybe especially when you give people infinite shelf space, they really want to listen to what other people are listening to, <laughs> at least part of the time. You know, right. because otherwise it's kind of lonely. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that that social media kind of the thing that the long tail people didn't see coming was social media, maybe, and mm-hmm. and social media uh, created this whole new demand uh, for pop hits, and also in the movies, you know, for mega Marvel comic mm-hmm. sequels, you know, blockbuster sequels, right? And stuff, you know. It's, it's the same phenomenon in a way. Yeah, that, that's a, that's funny how that works. You'd think that the more choice you'd get, the more varied things you hear, but it just seems to get more more and more samey. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I wanted to get your opinion on this. Uh, the uh, Marvin Gaye uh, lawsuit against uh, Robin Thicke, uh, and uh, I believe was that Pharrell involved yeah. in that? Yeah. Um, now that was an interesting case because then we all. Also had the um, Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. uh, you know, case with Stairway to Heaven. They stole that from uh, was what was the name of the band they meant to uh, stole? Spirit. That? Spirit. There you go. Uh, and yeah, you know that that was uh, probably a little more blatant. But I thought the got to give it up blurred lines thing was interesting because I didn't really see that as you know you can definitely tell you know there's there's a similarity there. I don't know. Does it just seem like maybe? There's only so many notes you can play, and it's like we maybe we've explored all the combinations of some of those notes, and it's like, you know, Marvin Gaye's going to exist forever, and we still have to keep creating new music, so maybe something's going to sound like it eventually. You know what I mean? It, 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 yeah. yeah, it didn't seem like an exact carbon copy, but it definitely was, you know, inspired by or whatever. So, yeah, I think most musicians and uh, people who who know anything about songwriting uh, were kind of horrified by that. Uh, ruling because it, it it was wrong, essentially. The jury didn't really follow the instructions. You're not really, you can't copyright song. You know, you can copyright certain aspects of songs, words and melody, but you can't really copyright feel, you can't copyright, you know, a rhythm pattern or a chord progression and but of course when a jury hears two songs that sound similar, they they kind of disregard the actual, you know, letter of the law and say, Yeah, these these two songs sound similar and then Marvin Gaye I mean uh, Robin Thicke did himself no favors by giving the interview with GQ where he actually said that they put on that song, Gotta Give It Up, 
when they were composing uh, blurred lines, right. and and that you know that, that and that's what's called in the business a reference track, mm-hmm. and uh, you know people play them all the time in studios, uh, uh, and that's what produ- you know one of the things that producers do at the beginning of sessions they say okay, you know I heard uh, you know this song from the '90s, this remix by you know whoever and. Just listen to this, and then often whatever comes out it has something to do with that song. And, and, and I, so as soon as like this ruling came out, all this do that uh, immediately, of course, freaked out. It's like you know, um, because now they could get sued. And mm-hmm. and uh, I, I noted that uh, I note that uh, Mormon Gay Estate is now suing um, Ed Sheeran over mm-hmm. one of his songs. Uh, so uh, you know, if if you open the door to this kind of thing, you're going to get a ton of and yes, there are you know an, a finite number of notes, mm-hmm. and and yes, the way people listen to music and the way people compose music is very sample based, uh, and if, so if you're not literally sampling some other song, you're 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 kind of like you know informally sampling it, and and that's more true you know than ever with with the technology to do it mm-hmm. developing. Uh, so I, th- I think. The, it's like that ruling was very much out of step with the the way things are going, and I, I, it's it's being appealed. Uh, the Led Zeppelin ruling, I will note, uh, Led Zeppelin was found uh, not guilty. That's true of infringement of of, of Spirit's uh, song, um, and you know I actually felt there that the similarities were closer, and mm-hmm. that Led Zeppelin you know, might lose or at least be forced to give up some credit um, to the estate of Randy California, who was the guy who, the song was called Taurus, mm-hmm. uh, the original song. But no, the jury found uh, that Led Zeppelin didn't infringe because that kind of descending scale that, uh, you know, uh, Stairway to Heaven starts with, is a common, you know, commonly used technique going back into, yeah, as you said, you know, Renaissance music. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, so I think that was probably, I don't know, but I, I, I'm happier with that ruling. Yeah, right, right. Even though Led Zeppelin could share some of that money probably. <laughs> I'm but. sure they could afford the one island less yeah. than they have or whatever. Um, of course, then you have John Fogarty being sued for sounding like himself, but right. that, that's a different, that's that's a different thing. So. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, David, I mean, people maybe don't remember, but David Kevin actually once sued Neil Young for turning in a non-commercial album. Really? What? Yeah. What album was that? Uh, it was after On the Beach. It was like, was it Tusk? I huh. can't remember. Or no, Tusk was uh, Fleetwood Mac. Mm-hmm. There was. It was after On the Beach when he got very, pretty strange. Interesting. For a while. <laughs> I'll have to remember that one. Um, so you've, you've written about all these these manufactured pop groups, and and you've you've definitely seen like you you mentioned the Britney Spears uh, breakdown, and now she's in a lifetime conservatorship with her lawyer and her her dad. Um, does any of this ever creep you out to write about this? Because, I mean, it almost seems kind of like the child actor thing. It's like these people become so famous at such a young age, and they're not in control of their career or what they're saying or what they're symbolizing or whatever. Um, does, does it ever unsettle you to write about this this stuff? 
Only on the level of being a parent of a son who uh, is a wants to be an actor, is an actor, uh, and would like to be a professional actor. I mean, that's one reason that he's not going to a conservancy, you know, at 18, but he's actually going to college. Uh, is that I think, um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Britney Spears. I thought one of the most poignant lines uh, in the book uh, is in the section about Britney Spears. Years when uh, um, there's a it's a it's a school report. She went to like the Mickey Mouse school, literally it's called the Mickey Mouse school. Mm-hmm. When she was in the Mickey Mouse club, and that's where she you know learned whatever she learned. They didn't teach evolution, of course. You know, <laughs> that would be too controversial. And uh, and in, in the in the report, uh, like from one of, from her headmaster or something, it was like you know, uh, Brittany uh, has absolute trust in adults and always does exactly what they tell her to do. Mm. You know, and that probably is exactly what she did. And, you know, they kept telling her to wear that short. I mean, she no doubt had a hand in it, you know, and, Mm. you know, tie your your, uh, uniform up or whatever. But, but, yeah, uh, she was used, mm-hmm. you know, as a as a sex object, as a you know, as a child mm-hmm. uh, by men that were much older and knew what they were doing more than she did, mm-hmm. and you know that happens all the time uh, yeah. in one way or another, and, and some people. And, and it usually is women who are very young girls uh, who have to sign these long contracts. Six, you know, the thing that came out about the Kesha thing was just, you know, the fact that her contract was, you know, a pretty standard contract, and it was a six-album contract. You know, so you're you're having to sign away your whole professional life right. at the age of 16 to some guy who shows interest in you for reasons that you don't really maybe quite fathom and you know was a lot older and right and the whole business has got a lot of sleazy people in it i mean Mm Uh, there's a lot of people in the music business that are there because they're really good at hustling. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like the one bedrock quality that you know you really need to have if you're going to make it. Um, you have to just like hustle, and even if you have no other talent, if you have like enough hustle, you can probably make some kind of money somehow because you know there's just the rules and standard rules of practice just aren't as established as they are in in a lot of other businesses and there's a long history of essentially you know ripping people off uh you know ripping black artists off take keeping the publishing uh rights that people didn't understand their value uh you know taking credit where credit was not deserved uh all that kind of stuff has been going on for a long long time in the music business and you know it's it's sort of a naive to think that it 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 doesn't exist maybe in its most naked form anymore but everybody kind of has that attitude or a lot of people do in at the back of their mind Mm -hmm. you know you can you take whatever you can get essentially right right yeah that's that's probably very true um now you you write for a pretty uh highbrow publication there uh, and this is all these things we've been talking about are, are generally considered kind of low culture uh, right. so uh, what is it like to write for kind of a, a highbrow audience about 
about these these kind of things because I'm, I'm sure a lot of people who read your work maybe aren't you know I'm familiar with it but yeah, it may just because of my age or whatever but you know like I, I knew all these people just from growing up and being saturated with it but I can't imagine everybody that reads your your work is, is already right. familiar so yeah it's challenging you know I mean it's always challenging uh, working for the New Yorker and that uh, you know the audience is uh, very demographically broad uh, a lot of the people are not uh, you know that young uh, particularly mm-hmm. the subscribers you know and they are really are sort of like bread and butter they're the people that keep subscribing year after year and kind of you know mm-hmm. really keep us going uh, and the advertisers are more sort of a fickle bunch and you, you know so so you know you would imagine that the people who are doing the ad buying are young people who are very uh, plugged into this stuff but the people who are the subscribers are probably a good bit older so so you know you still try to reach both ideally uh, but you can't uh, you know talk over the head of the subscribers uh, and use a lot of jargon words that they don't understand and make kind of like assumptions about stuff that they don't know mm-hmm. uh, because then they'll just get really turned off and and you just sort of, sort of feel like you're kind of violating your your contract in some way by right. doing that I mean mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't want to do that uh, but uh, you know, of course, you don't want to like repeat obvious stuff that's been said before to the young people, so that they just think you're lame and out of it. Mm-hmm. So, really, the only way that that you you can kind of solve that, there's two ways you can you can tell a story uh, that hasn't been told before, and even if like the information in it is is known, if you tell it in a new way, it seems new, or you and or you can you know like just strive. To to think more deeply about it or try to, to achieve insights that others haven't had, uh, you know, try to put uh, information together in a different pattern to see things a different way or or to look at things from a different perspective in terms of uh, time. I mean, one of the things that I think is unusual about the song machine is that most of the, when people write about this stuff, they tend to write about it for, like, magazines and newspapers, you know, we week to week, month to month, uh, who's got the hit song now, Which what's the hit song next, and there isn't really a, a longer perspective taken on this stuff, and then when people do take a longer perspective, they write about, like, you know, Motown or, you know, mm-hmm. eras that, that are past that you can treat as a historian where they're not going to, you know, be making any more new songs. So, so, so Song Machine is, is in between those two things, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it, it's kind of unusual that way, but uh, I, that's one of the, you know, I think one of the kind of things that about it that made it unique and interesting is that it had that perspective that isn't taken that often, you know, in covering this stuff, and even if you kind of know it, you know, it seems like you didn't know it, and also, uh, let's not discount nostalgia, I mean, the same reason that people like to listen to oldies, you know, they might like to, like you, you like read about the, the sure. songs that uh, they knew when they were kids, and a lot of these songs are, you know, 20 years ago, 90 songs that you actually, I hear Ace of Base on the radio a lot uh, mm-hmm. now, not just 
the sign, but also uh, all that she wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's like kind of a 20-year oldies cycle that that does, that, that does happen. And yeah, fits into that kind of perfectly. Yeah, as soon as I hear, yeah, as soon as I started hearing all the songs from my youth on the on the quote-unquote oldies station, I'm like, all right, I guess I'm just old now. <laughs> I guess this is where the line in the sand is. So. Yeah, <laughs> for that sure. Happened. Everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, about it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, what are you working on next? What's your What's your next project? Well, you know, the thing I didn't do in the Song Machine was uh, really uh, get into any hip hop uh, producer working methods. It was very much of a sort of you know white. I mean, Esther Dean is is a black as a black person, but it was essentially kind of the the white wing of the pop world. And so the last, so I wanted. To, <laughs> I've been thinking about would it be possible to do that. Uh, same kind of thing with hip-hop. I'm not sure if it would just because, you know, I'm kind of an older white guy. I'm not sure, like, how how comfortable ultimately people would have. But anyway, I did a piece about a, hip, a young hip-hop producer named Mike Will Made It, uh, who, uh, which was in the New Yorker like a month ago. And um, and that was fun. You know, I was, and it came out pretty well, and, and it didn't seem like, uh, you know, Mike. I mean, it, it kind of opened some other hip-hop doors. And so... I might I might try to do another hip hop piece, uh you know, maybe about a, an artist. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh and um Otherwise, yeah, there's been a lot of kind of TV interest in uh, the Song Machine. Um, the HBO option, the original article, which was um, the one about Esther Dean, um, and that kind of is, you know, that kind of was the heart in the heart of the book, I think. And and now they're actually making a pilot. They got this director named um, Alfonso Gomez Rion, who who did uh, Me Earl and the Dying Girl. He's, he's really a talented young. Um, uh, uh, Hispanic American director mm-hmm. from Laredo, Texas, and he's gonna he's gonna kind of make a musical oh, wow. um, out of it, uh, which is kind of cool because when I was writing it, I would always tell people, you know, I kind of feel like I'm writing a musical here because yeah. it, it would be like you have a story, and then you have a song, and then a story, and then a song, <laughs> and uh, and then when he said I want to make a musical, I was like, yes, that's what I wanted to do. That seems like a perfect fit, for sure. Yeah, so, so I'm going to uh, consult on that, and, uh, you know, he, I'm not going to write it or anything, but they, they need to find a, a writer, like a showrunner-type person. Uh, but, you know, I'm psyched about that, and um, otherwise, you know, I do sort of, you know, sometimes just off topic stuff for the New Yorker and mm-hmm. you know probably going to do some more of that stuff too cool cool well uh, last question I always ask this uh, what have you been listening to lately you, you talked a little bit about uh, hip hop what what artists have you been into here lately uh, I think uh, the, I mean I don't even know if these guys are ultimately going to last but the songs I've uh, uh, oh, Wale uh, mm-hmm. is I like uh, a couple songs of Wale I think he calls it Wally Wally W A L E. Yeah. 
Uh, I think Young Thug is extremely talented and innovative, although sometimes I think he goes a little too far, but of course yeah, I'm supposed to think he goes a little too far because I think that's what he's going for. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, I think he's a very talented dude. I, I think Big Sean has a lot of talent and will mature and develop into a fantastic artist. Um, Rich Homie Kwan, mm -hmm. I think, is, is super talented. And I think Kid Ink, although he's very kind of commercial, you know, he like it sounds like soundtracks to Furious Seven or something. Uh, I still think he's like got something, and you know, and and there are others too. Uh, I, I just sort of feel like that's where you're seeing a lot of interesting stuff, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm kind of excited about that. Cool. Well, uh, I love the book, and I can't wait to read uh, whatever you do next. And I really thank you for coming on. You're welcome back anytime. So. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, when you're going to get it up, send me a link. I'd love to listen to it. All right, will do. Thanks a lot. Thanks, man. All right, bye. Have a good day.